The Southwest WA Drought Resilience Adoption and Innovation Hub acknowledges the traditional custodians throughout Western Australia and their continuing connection to the land, waters and community. It pays its respects to Elders past and present and extends that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hello, I'm Julianne Hill, Hub Adoption Manager. This podcast series on dry season responses is brought to you by the Southwest WA Drought Hub and funded through Future Drought Fund. In this series, we'll hear from growers and industry experts on managing dry season responses, ranging from early planning to tactical decision making as the season changes throughout the year and setting up for your following season. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Dry Season Resources podcast. It has been a hot minute but we are back with season two and I'm very excited to be bringing you another series of episodes on this very worthy topic. To kick us off for season two, we're going to be talking all about managing risk. We're going to be talking about just how to, we're going to help you growers make more informed decisions based on your head, heart and gut. We all know you like to use your intuition, but we're going to bring the brains into it a little bit as well and just figure out how to best manage uh, the risk around these decisions by showing the extremes, whether it's dry seasons, yield, and just helping you make some more informed decisions. I am joined by Cameron Weeks from Plan Farm and Cam Nicholson from Nikon Rural Services over east. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, gentlemen. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having us. Let's start with yourself, Cameron. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do, why we've chosen you to join us on this podcast today? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a farm management consultant or advisor in Western Australia. I've been... With Plant Farm is the firm, and I've been consulting for 20 years, predominantly with clients in what we call the northern ag region, spread across sort of the WA high through to low rainfall zones in the east. And I suppose recently I spoke at an ag consulting uh, conference a bit about some of the changes in cost structures in businesses over a very short period of time and what that's done to elevate the, the financial risk to farmers. And over to you, Cam. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, a uh, bit of a ringing, I suppose, for the West Australians. So just based out of Geelong in uh, southern Victoria, my wife and I farm beef, cattle and sheep, so we don't do any cropping. Just out of Geelong, I've also been consulting for the private consulting for the last 35 years, and before that with the Department of Agriculture. And I suppose my interest in this space started from the Grain and Graze program, which some people in the West will be familiar with the name, I think, probably 20 years ago where there was a a fairly significant investigation into the decision-making and the risk in that mixed farming type program. So that's really, that started my interest and I've been on it ever since. All right. So we've got two very qualified people here to talk to us about risk. And I want to start off with the idea that risk isn't about the middle or the average. It really is about managing the extremes and appreciating what happens when those extremes occur Can you start off, Cam, by telling us, I guess, what those extremes look like and why it's important to consider the extremes and not just the average? Yeah, I think you nailed the probably the most important bit. We've spent a lot of time in agriculture talking about averages, 
and averages tell you nothing about risk. So I, I think we've sort of we've hidden this conversation that we need to have around risk because of that. You know, if we got average yields and average prices every year, farming would be pretty straightforward. But we don't. You know, and the, it's a few years ago now, but the Australian Farm Institute did a, a fascinating study where they looked at different sectors in the Australian economy. So mining, retail, manufacturing, agriculture. And agriculture was by far, if you looked at the volatility of gross output, was far more volatile than any of those other sectors. And then they compared Australian agriculture to agriculture around the world. And Australia stood out is the most volatile of any country in the world from an agricultural point of view. So if you put those two together, you know, we're playing the riskiest game in town. And I think for too long we, we've talked about the averages when we really should say, well, what are some of the extremes or what are some of the the volatility or the ranges we could potentially expect and what are our contingencies for different extremes that we may start to encounter. And when we're talking about extremes, what do we mean by that? Extremes in what? This, this seems like a very broad topic, but what are some of the extremes that we need to take into consideration? Yeah, well, in, in simple terms, if, if you distill it all down, it's, it's yield and price in an agricultural system. While we have, obviously, costs are an important part of it, but the volatility in costs, it's not like at the start of the year, the price that you might pay for your fertiliser roundup, and I'm going to contradict myself here because the last couple of years with your res been a little bit odd. But historically, you know, our, our costs, we could sort of predict the costs reasonably well from the start of the season to what we get at the end. But the start of the season, what yield are you going to get? What price are you going to get? is much harder. So they're the more volatile components, if you like, of the profit equation. And some of these extremes that we're seeing when it comes to price and yield, they are coming as a result of weather events, of, of the climate and as of a drying climate, which is the whole point of this podcast, is, is dry season resources. I understand, Cameron, that Plan Farm has some benchmarks around a whole bunch of different topics, really, when it comes to, to these extremes, whether it's yield or, or whatever. Can you talk us through those benchmarking reports that you have and, and how they, I guess, contribute to this topic of risk? Yeah, sure. Well, every year after we complete what we call our annual review and budgeting process, which winds up, let's say, very early April at the latest, we compile all of the data from the year just gone and produce an annual you know, client benchmarking report so it's an annual publication across Western Australia covering all rainfall zones, but we're always looking back over the over the 10 years and looking at the changes, the trends, et cetera. So probably the very best example of the extremes that Cam's referring to is the 2022 season, so the report that was released last year. It was one of you know record grain production in Western Australia, very close to record, you know, profitability on, on the back of just the most staggeringly good season across the entirety of WA. And yet this year, the northern half of the state has had a very, very poor and probably their worst financial outcome on record. And, and that's what the, the benchmarking data really just shows. It is just data, Shannon, but it, it shows us, you know, some really, when you want me to look back through time, it really picks up that volatility piece. And a really good example, I was just doing a review two days ago up in the Geraldton area, a business not far from Geraldton in what we call for that part of the world high rainfall. I think the wheat crop, wheat averaged 4.7 tonne in 2022 and it averaged 
eight ton in 2023. So the volatility is not just in the low rainfall zones, is it? It's it's also very much the high, and I think that's one of the one of the misconceptions. Everyone talks in WA that oh, those you know the farmers that are out east and up in the northeast, yes, they do have extreme volatility, but the the high producing areas still still have these very poor years, and they might grow more grain, but they're all geared around high yields and the costs are higher and so the losses can still be very, very large. Yes, and that's not just a, a WA thing. You know, eastern seaboard's exactly the same. We can have very good, what we might call reliable high rainfall country, but you still get some massive volatility in, you know, the extremes are still there. <laughs> you can't hide from the extremes in Australian agriculture. No, I do definitely think it's an important distinction to make that, yes, when we talk about these extremes, they're not targeted at one area, one rainfall zone, any particular type of operation. This is going to affect, you know, people who are just broad acre operations just as, a, as much as it affects, you know, beef and, and sheep farmers. You know, everyone's susceptible to these extremes. We want to talk about informed decision-making around extremes, which is an easy thing to say out loud, but it's not an easy thing to do. So how do growers and farmers actually go about making more informed decisions? That's a big question. I feel like I've just really thrown that one out there and I'm asking you to tell me the meaning of life or something like that. But how do we make more informed decisions? I think the very first thing is just to to understand and acknowledge. If you don't have the data, you don't have, you know, the real I suppose even the, like the ultimate is the financial implication. If you don't have that at your disposal and you don't understand the volatility, you don't understand what's possible, how are you going to manage it? How, you know, you, the, the farm next door comes up, you're wondering should you buy it? It's at a record price. And I think that's where the extremes matter because banks and traditionally people like myself will do year in, year out budgets. They're all around average, aren't they, Cam? So, you know, and, that, and that's probably the primary, well, one of the primary servicing tools, and it's still a very legitimate tool because at the end of the day, it still is average through time, isn't it? But you need to really stress test, you know, your decision making or the, you know, with, with with the extremes. And it's not just also the the poor, isn't it? I, I often say to, to clients, I mean, your jobs to get through the lousy years to get to the really good because it's a small percentage of years that occasionally happen back to back, like we had. Here in WA, 21 and 22 were just mind-bogglingly good. If you fall short of getting to those years, you're missing out on on a big chunk of your profits, aren't you? So I, I think you need to really you really need to have some good information to start with at your at your disposal. There's a a few important things to unpack in that from what Cameron said. I think that the first one is that if in managing risk, part of it is making good seasons great. Because we know that they're only going to come around so often, so how do you make sure you get the most out of them? And I think, uh, you know, historically we may have looked at it and certainly, you know, uh, from a grazing sort of point of view, a lot of people say, oh, we're having a good season, but how do you actually make that a spectacular season and and capitalise on that, whether that's fodder conservation or whatever it might be, to put away for the inevitable bad times you're going to get? But if I go back to the, the first point I made about the volatility in the Australian agriculture and we're not going to go bust if every year we've got average price in every season and and yields were were average it's it's that we don't and so we need to be prepared for those now most farms have survived 
through that volatility because they you know a lot of farms are generational so we we have inherently learnt of ways to manage that risk and we do that in our decision making and you mentioned at the start the head heart and gut Shannon well a lot of that resides in your gut in your experience in your intuition you know of you know I think that's a risky decision or I've seen this happen before and that shapes your decision making what I learned from the all the work we did in the Grain and Graze program is when the numbers don't replace that, the numbers enhance that because quite often you can get a thing called recency bias, which is what's happened in the last couple of years has a greater influence on the way you see things and therefore make decisions than what historically might be. And because we are so volatile, that 10 years of data or 20 years of data that Cameron's talking about, you can then start to look back on that and go, well, how often do we get these really tight years? You know, one in every five, one in every ten, you know, and you can start to then what I call frame the odds. So I see Cameron's data as the form guide. You know, this is history. This is what we've done in the past, and we can use that to form an opinion on what we think the future might be. So those two bumper years that you spoke about, uh, I think it was 21, 22 you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you think how often that's likely to happen again, it might be a once in every 20, once in every 30-year type event where you roll one good year into another good year. And so you've got to put that into context, not thinking that, oh, a lot of years are going to be like this. No, that was pretty unusual, you know. And so I think in, in making better decisions or more informed decisions that we're talking about, combining both your gut feel and enhancing that with the numbers, I think, helps make better decisions or helps inform those decisions. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, Cam, your comment about recency bias and, and looking at those these three most recent years in WA, and particularly the, the northern ag region, was 21 and 22 that they were, they were bumper years because of the second half of the year. They were, they were amazingly good. You know, probably started in July, but August, September, and... They were, you know, there was good rain through those those key months, and it was cool. Nice soft finish both of those years. Yeah. So if you if you think about, for example, nitrogen, obviously it's it's the key variable once you've committed to planting a crop, isn't it? You know, for your, your cereals and canola, the decision you're making to to spend, you know, in, in whatever the, the the last window is for you to be able to put nitrogen on and really have a, a yield impact. And it's not an easy one because you don't know what's to come, do you? You just know what's happened to date. So it was common for people to have probably looked back in 21 and 22 and felt like they fell short on nitrogen because I'd argue they actually made good decisions because they were, I can't remember exactly, but they might have been decile two, three sort of years. They were tracking okay. Crop was certainly on time, growing well, got a remarkably good finishes, so therefore yields, yields were really high. 23 we sort of never really broke out of decile one and, and in many cases it was under, but but often the crop, mostly the crop was on time. It was sort of it was there, it was tracking, and that recency bias led some people to go really hard on nitrogen, which I think was a flawed decision because it never at any stage from a rainfall to date point of view did it look like it was going to be a great year. And, of course, we got the opposite finish, bugger all rain, hot, so I think that isn't that a good example. I think Cam, where they're, they're not easy decisions. You look back and think, oh, I probably missed some, but then this year get it wrong. They're, they're hoping like heck that it's there next year or this this year, twenty twenty four, and they can capitalise on it. But yeah, but but if you if you take the the head bit of it, 
Cameron, how often do you get those soft finishes? Not often. You know, and if you looked at it, not often, and you think, well, we've just had two in a row, what are the odds of getting it a third time in a row? Pretty low. So what probably should have informed this decision, and that's another comment I'll make at a tick, is that this is highly unlikely. So maybe I should be a bit more conservative in the nitrogen I put on. But I think there's an important just distinction here, Shannon, between what I call a good decision and a right decision. And, you know, in farming, we're trying to make good decisions all the time and hope they turn out right. You only know they turn out right in hindsight. So I, I'd say to people, put away the right decision bit. We can be all be heroes in hindsight if everything works out the way we want, you know. But what we've got to aim for is to make good decisions. And those good decisions, if you start using the information, the data that Cameron was talking about and saying, well, okay, we're at this point now, it's tracking pretty low and we're starting to get into this spring period, what are the chances of us getting another soft finish when we've had two and they're pretty rare? Probably should have informed you to, to be a little bit more conservative. And, and that's the way I think you combine the two together. I've uh, got so many good catchphrases from you from this podcast, Cam. I'm liking make good seasons great again. It uh, it really sounds like it's quite a catchy little thing. And, yeah, aim for good decisions, not right decisions. I think, honestly, people can apply that to every part of their life as well. If we all just aim for good decisions in life in general, I think we'd be going a whole lot better. Now, I want to ask, I should clarify, so when we're talking about this this data from these reports and, and using this data to, to make good decisions – how can that data actually be extrapolated and decisions made from it? How do, how do we actually go about doing that and making those good decisions? Maybe a balance sheet example. I'll go back to my comment earlier about the farm next door comes on the market. I think uh, we don't know what the next two seasons are going to bring. So let's, let's say the, we do the maths, we, we can finance it, the business might be dropping from a very strong position to, say, 70% equity. Um, but it's a big purchase and the bank's funded it, but there's not much of a borrowing buffer left. Is that a good decision or is it the right decision? We'll only know when the next couple of seasons happen, won't they? But it's a, I think now, and this is where the cost, the increased cost of doing business has elevated the risk, is because the losses are now bigger than they, they have been before. Is that a good decision? We'll only know if it's a right decision, um, as Cam said, if we know what happens in the next two years, which we don't. And that's something I'm particularly cautious now about with my clients. And I think my clients mostly are too, because they're, they're also paying, you know, top dollar. You're looking at the returns on our best possible assumptions and they're not overly attractive really. So you want to make sure you can afford it. But yeah, I, I think that's a balance sheet example is what's good. I mean, I, I'm a real advocate now of a bigger financial buffer than what you might've worked on in the past because of this volatility and the volatility in, in profitability because of the, the bigger losses. Mm. And, and I think running those scenarios that Cameron was talking about, because if you know the history and saying, okay, if we worked on getting averages, this is what we might get, you know, over the next four or five years, and we'd be in a comfortable position and that would all work nicely. But what if we got this? And what if we got this? And, and as you start doing some of those scenarios, and if you base them on historic conditions and let's you know, to some extent put the climate change bit aside and just say what's uh, just the volatility that we've experienced in the past, you can start to get some real insights. What if we had two bad years and then a couple of good years, you know, and, and 
how common is that? And you then start to get a feel for the risk profile, is what I might call it, of that decision. I, I think we grossly underplay the local knowledge and the use of historic data. I think we, from a risk point of view, we can do much better in valuing that than maybe we have in the past. Cameron, have you seen any of your clients, and, and this might apply to, to you, Cam, because you might actually be one of the people who are, who are doing this, and it sounds like you probably are, but are there decisions that farmers are making differently when they look at the benchmarks, when they look at this data that is helping them reduce their risk? Are there any key areas that, that you can point to? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think our benchmarking data is mostly used by clients or, or, or certainly what, what we encourage is to, I suppose, figure out if you're looking to improve where to focus because I'll, I'll, I'll always be you know, reminding people that the, the answer doesn't lie in the benchmark data but it helps you figure out where to focus. Um, you know, is that income? Is it expenditure? Is it a bit of both? You know, is it is it on the balance sheet, et cetera? So, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm not sure with, with the question you've asked, Shannon, whether it specifically does. I think more important is the, rather than the benchmarking, is the individual client's history, understanding, you know, that, that volatility, you know, because there are certainly, you know, across locations, some of the volatility is a lot tighter. So, Perhaps you can take a little bit more balance sheet risk in the knowledge that, oh, well, there's my worst year in the last 10. You know, what was the financial impact of that year? What was my production? I mean, what, one thing that I'm noticing, though, too, is that looking back too far, certainly in WA, I, I'm guessing, Cam, it'd be the same in, in the cropping regions in Victoria and, and into New South Wales, is that we've actually improved production so much. I mean, what is efficiency? I mean, the, the graph in our benchmark, you know, in our benchmarking report from last year is over the last ten or twelve years is just yes, it bubbles around, but it's this constant trend up, and that's where a whole bundle of things are coming together to allow you know farmers to actually get better production outcomes in poor years and better production outcomes in the good years, and, and capitalising on those really good which is a credit to them, but it's a credit to the industry too because it's, it's everything, isn't it, from soil amelioration to, to, to better farming practices, sowing earlier, retaining stubbles, improved genetics, you know, good weed control. It, it really is proof in those numbers of that improvement. So, you know, you can look back a long way and go, well, this is what happened 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but I, the, the relevance probably needs to be questioned as well for some. Yes, it's certainly certainly the context, but that idea of saying, okay, we had a, a tight start but a soft finish, how often do we get those and what sort of yields could we expect around those types of things and how often do those occur, I think that's where you can, you can certainly use the data. I'd also add another thing, Shannon, is that your risk appetite, is it's a personal thing. And it changes not only by the person, but also by your circumstance. You know, you you will make different decisions depending on your stage of life and 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 
you know, previous experiences you've had. And I always say that the right level of risk is is the one that you can sleep comfortably with at night. If it's keeping you awake, then you've probably got too much. And and so I always use that as a bit of a sort of a test, a bit of an overlay. Are you comfortable with this level of risk? And And I've had clients over here that have reduced their level of debt because from a family and a personal point of view, it was stressing them out too much. You know, and they could... Yeah, they could have crossed their fingers and it may have worked out right, but you've got to take that that human sort of element into it as well. And there's no right answer on risk. It's what you're comfortable with and it will change, you know, and our, our farming has changed with you know, kids going through school and bits and pieces compared to when we were child-free and doing things. We, we would take punts on different things, you know. So it, it's just important to recognise that, that you're not fixed in this risk appetite, this risk position, it will change depending on your circumstances. And Cam, do you have any advice for people? Because that's, it's a really interesting idea that, yeah, that your idea of risk is it's going to be individual on each person and, and it is going to change, as you say, depending on which stage of life you're in. But that's a really hard thing to grapple with. And I guess actually sit there and like feel that internally and know where you sit with it. Do you have any advice on how people can figure out, I guess, what their risk appetite is and just how much risk they're willing to take on? What's the, I guess, the scale that we can look at? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 difficult to do, but as I said, if you can combine what your gut feel or your instinct tells you and look at some numbers, the sort of stuff that Cameron was talking about, some of those scenarios, and think, okay, if it panned out this way, how would you feel? Would you be, you know, crawling up the walls or would you think, oh, no, I can cope with that? You know, the, the combination of the two, I think, helps inform that that better. You know, I was I did some work up in the, the Mallee a few years ago and did some analysis on them using what's called stochastic modelling, but it, it's basically millions of combinations of different, <laughs> you know, yields and prices and, and those sort of things. And uh, the farms on average came out that they were making, turning a profit 55% of the time and making a loss 45% of the time. Well, you know, for me coming from a livestock, quite a stable livestock background, I was horrified. They were quite comfortable. And they said, yeah, because when we get a good year, it goes really well, you know. And so they were, they'd chosen to, to farm in that environment, low rainfall environment. They'd become very good at their cost management side of things. And so while they're making a loss, those losses may be very small, but but the odds on that, I, I couldn't have slept at night even nearly half a percent of the time I wasn't going to make a profit, but they did and they've operated and they work pretty well in that. So it, it's it's knowing that and making sure you're you're comfortable with it, I think is the, is the main thing. And I've I've had people on the Eastern Seaboard that have you know bought other farms in different climatic regions just for the sake of managing their risk. And, and feeling more comfortable that they've got something in a higher rainfall zone than the, you know, as well as a lower rainfall zone. So there are different ways people can sort of work around that to get the right level of comfort, if you like, in, in their decisions. I mean, what you're sort of really saying, Cam, and you often I find when you talk to, to city people, so to speak, that don't really understand ag, they say, oh, you're a farm advisor. Oh, gee, they're, they're mad, those farmers. Do they take a lot of risk? And and, and as I say to them, well, if you had $100,000 to invest and you gave it to a good farmer for a year, that's highly risky because no matter how good he is, he can't control the outcome. But if you give it to that same farmer for a decade, that's not risky. 
because you will get a very good return. And so I think that's the thing, isn't it, Through, And that's a bit like the 55% of the time making profits and 45 not. But if that, and I suppose that's where average and, and the total through time is what ultimately matters, isn't it? Well, it is. It just it depends a little bit on the sequencing of it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, it's interesting. I, I do some just I do a sim- very simple quiz if I'm ever giving a, a talk about uh, odds because risk is likelihood by consequence. That's what it means by definition. And you know, and when we think of risk, we always think of the downside. But risk is derived from the Italian word risicare, which actually means to dare. So when we're talking about risk, we're actually thinking about what level of punt do I want to take to potentially get a certain level of return, knowing if it doesn't go well, what is the downside? So in understanding risk properly, it's understanding both the upside and the downside. So I talk about downside risk and upside risk, and that's what you're basically playing with. And then you roll the dice. Good operators that have good trigger points and good decision points in place reduce that risk because they think it's not going quite this right way. I now back off on such and such. Your nitrogen example, Cameron, was a really good one, that late season nitrogen. We struggle with the same thing over here. But the the really good operators, when everything's stacking up in their favour that they know are key influences or critical factors in that, they'll throw the kitchen sink at it. But as things start to tighten up and they've learnt over time that oh, if this is like this and this is like this, history tells me that you know, the odds of it panning out well aren't as good, I start backing off. And to me, that's, that's informed decision-making, that's good decision-making. And often, you find, commonly you find, they seem to make right decisions more often than others. <laughs> you know, and it's not luck. <laughs> it's that combination of doing those things. And guess what? It pans out in their favour more often than not. And you go, gee, they're good farmers. They make good decisions, don't they? You know, no, they actually follow a process. That leads me into a question I wanted to ask, sorry, was is part of this, I guess, the timeliness of making these decisions? It's all very good and well to to manage the risk and and think it through, but I feel like at some point you've got to have, as as you said, Cam, a a trigger point or something that happens where you actually make a decision one way or the other because it's all very good and well to make the, the good decision, but if you make it at the wrong time, then, you know, it's still not the way that you want it to pan out. So is that part of it, those timely decision-making? Oh, a- absolutely. You know, you, you can't avoid the the time element in decision, particularly in things like ag. You know, good, good opportunities will pass you by if you don't act and you'll exacerbate bad situations if you don't act. And I'm, I'm certainly finding more and more having these trigger points, so to speak, set up or critical assessment points in a production system really important. I, go, I look back now at the, the operation farm and uh, my wife and I operate. Uh, we've got six of them during the year. And there are things around how much feed do we have in front of us and stock condition and, and, and they're giving us early warnings about, you know, should we be thinking of selling some stock earlier? You know, should we be thinking of putting some nitrogen on because we know in two months' time feed's going to be tight because this set of circumstances, it's not going to play out that it's going to be good winter, you know. So let's act two months earlier, not act when we're in the middle of winter and go, gee, we've got no feed. So that sort of preparation when you're not under stress, when you, you can think a bit more clearly, when you can do the analysis and, in a sense, make time so that 
when you've got to make the critical decision, things are set up. It's almost already made for you. Yeah. I guess it's almost a case of putting some guidelines in place of if X happens, we do Y. If Y happens, we do Z because you already know the different situations that might occur in these extreme scenarios and, and what the best decision is to make if that situation's looking more likely in a particular season. Is that is that a good summary? Yes, it is, if they're relatively simple decisions. As they become more complex and there are more things to consider, you know, the, the seasons like this, my soil moisture's like this, I've got weeds like this, the price is like this, and there's about five or six things that are sort of floating around. So as they become more complex, they are harder decisions to make. And so the more you've thought through them and and worked out, you know, if this is like this and this is like this and this is like this, on balance, this is probably the best decision or the best direction to take. So I, I, I talk and I, I do some training around this stuff called decision matrices. And they're basically just a, a table where you've got six or eight things that you've got to consider. Not all of those, and so I call them those critical factors, not all are of equal importance, but it allows you at any point in time to score those six or eight critical factors that should be considered at any point and you have them set up. So, oh, we've got to the end of May, let's consider these six. Gee, most things aren't stacking up in our favour. Maybe we should be a bit more conservative about X or Y decision going forward. And having a few of those in place during the year can be incredibly valuable. So the, while it's still a stressful decision to make, you've actually thought it through in, <laughs> when you're not stressed and so you can be more timely. Now, so we can do that much quicker. The other thing that it adds to it is that it, it, it helps you, if I need to know these six or eight bits of information, how can I set a system up where I can find that quickly? So, for example, at home, that's why we've got Moisture Probe because if we need to have an idea of what our soil moisture is, now, I don't want to be going out there digging or taking gravimetric moisture or something. I want a moisture probe to tell me. So we spend the money on the moisture probe because it makes sense because it helps me inform that decision quickly. We use high-resolution pasture satellite monitoring that we've calibrated for our place. Why? Because when you've got 40 or 50 paddocks, you have to assess in one time. I want to be able to sit there and hit a button in half an hour. I know what my whole farm pasture cover is. That's why we invest in that bit of tech. So, you know, it, it ties the decisions and the tech together if you, you're starting to do some of these, what I might call step or in-crop in or in-season, you know, d- key decision points. Mm. Well, you've identified that key data that you need to help inform yeah. your decisions, haven't you, Cam? And you've made it easy to get when you, when you need it. Yes, yes. And, and we can get trapped very easily with the latest tech that's coming out and the latest sales pitch, and you're thinking, oh, that'd be good, that could be interesting. But if it's not informing a critical decision at a critical time, where I love the other way of approaching it, of saying what are those critical factors I have to consider and what information would I need to inform those, they're the must-have bits. And then I'll play around with the other stuff if I want to, but I've got the must-have bits easily at my fingertips so I can inform those. And I'm assuming it would be a bit remiss of us to not mention, Cameron, that people like yourself are are very useful in these scenarios to help manage these decisions and help actually make these decisions. We don't have to do it all by ourselves. No, that's, that's correct. I remind our team of advisors and consultants too that it's the client's decision and it's the client's risk. And as Cam said, they're all going to have different risk profiles. 
But what we can do, uh, rather than necessarily tell them what to do, it's absolutely help them understand the consequences, what could go wrong, but also what could go right. And having an unbiased, unemotionally attached person to that decision, and again, I'll refer back to the farm next door, you know, that, that can be the classic, watched it your whole life, it's a beautiful farm, it's come on the market, okay, and that's where someone independent of that emotional attachment can really, really help. It's really rewarding too and it's also, as an advisor, I, I find that I never, I never go home and have a sleepless night worrying about the outcome for the client. I know some people do. The only times I've, I've had a sleepless night after helping a, a client arrive at a decision is where I question my advice, which has happened a couple of times where I, I got that wrong because it's their decision isn't it? So yeah, absolutely. Someone independent can be, can be gold. And that's why we, we, we have clients that are, you know, often, you know, we've got clients that are sort of third and in the extreme, almost fourth generation now. Yeah. And I, I, I agree entirely. The person making the decision needs to own the decision. No, and it's very easy to spend someone else's money, <laughs> you know, and and I find in a lot of agriculture we tend to, if we're trying to promote something, we, we tend to talk a lot about the upside, you know, and the trial results show this, this and this, and you tend to, to be biased towards talking about the best ones and not talking about the worst ones, you know, and so a good independent advisor that can say, look, you know, these scenarios are also possible and they're not as attractive as they are particularly when someone has that you know you talked about the head heart and gut of decision making well if the heart's saying gee I've always had my eye on that place I'd love to buy that you, you will end up with that bias of looking at more the positive sides of it and you'll run your scenarios in more positive situations because you don't want to see the downside because that challenges then to make that, you know, what you might call a tough decision with risk in mind. And, and good advisors are worth their weight in gold when they say, look, on balance, this is what you've got. You know? Are you still comfortable with this decision because these are the possible outcomes? Mm. And, and invariably we're dealing not with a single person, we're dealing with families. We're dealing with often a couple of generations, so younger with, you know, an appetite for more risk, older perhaps less brothers, you know, husbands and wives. So that's the other thing too is making sure that the clients are aligned and if they're not aligned, it's it's arguably not the right decision, isn't it, because it's going to create all, all manner of friction, yeah. Cam, Cameron, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I think we've hopefully given our farmers a fair bit to think about to help them make more informed decisions over the course of this and future seasons. Thanks for joining me. No problem. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Shannon. That brings us to the end of the first episode of season two of the Dry Season Resources podcast. We'll be back with you again very soon. Just a reminder, as we were all of season one, that the Southwest WA Hub is dedicated to sharing information that supports growers in preparing for and responding to dry seasons. The monthly Hub newsletter will keep you up to date with issues and information, and you can subscribe to that via the website at hub.gga.org.au under Hub News. We'll see you next time. You've just been listening to the Southwest WA Hub's limited dry season podcast series. 
For further support for decision-making through dry periods, the Drought Hub website features a collection of resources for the livestock, grains and horticultural industries. You can find them under the Resources tab on the Hub website at hub.gga.org.au. This episode has been brought to you by the Southwest WA Drought Hub, funded by the Future Drought Fund. If you or someone you know is in crisis, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14.